the Let's Talk podcast presents Jen Martin, with over 15 years in science communication ranging from multiple radio segments, a popular blog, and running Melbourne University's science communication teaching program. Jen Martin isn't just one of Victoria's most prolific science communicators, but one of the most prolific science communicators in Australia. A fact that was recognised earlier this year when you were actually awarded with the Unsung Hero Award by the Australian Science Communication Organisation. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Megan. It's lovely to chat with you. So there's a lot that I want to cover with you. You've done so much <laughs> over the years. But I think first things first, how did you actually get involved in science communication in the first place? What made you transition from academia to science communication? Well, it's funny because now when I teach students at Melbourne Uni, they're all at stages that when I was at the equivalent stage, I didn't even know what science communication was. I'd never even heard of yeah, it. So. It kind of came out of nowhere, didn't it? Because I didn't know anything about this, like just five years ago and then midway through uni everyone's like communication let's get on it well I think probably in the US and Europe it's been a thing for longer yeah. and perhaps it was in Australia too and I didn't know but look I went through a standard science degree well actually that's not true I did it combined arts and science I definitely credit my arts degree with helping me to be a better writer so I guess I was yeah. kind of already science communicator back then because I was mixing the science and the arts but I guess, you know, I grew up in a family. My dad was an academic. He was a, um, a zoologist. He moved to Australia to do a PhD. And a lot of my childhood, we got to do, um, you know, join him in the bush looking for frogs. And, you know, so I kind of grew up as a nature person. And my mum is also a very talented natural historian and a photographer. And so I kind of grew up wow. knowing science was my thing. And I guess it probably wasn't until my PhD that I started to have pretty major misgivings. And I guess all these years on, it's really easy to explain to you what my concerns were at the time. Mm. I don't have the language or the understanding to explain it clearly. But what I understand now is that one of my core values so this is, this is jumping way into the deep stuff, but values, I think it's really it's really worthwhile to know what your values are. Yeah. And I've worked out that one of my core values is trying to make a difference. You know, I want to feel like at the end of my life, I can look back and think I did something useful. You know, you feel a bit obnoxious putting it out there and saying, I want to make a difference. But, you know, that, that's just one of the things that's really important to me is to make a difference. And I think during my PhD, I started to have real misgivings. And I convinced myself all along the way that you can't conserve wildlife without having a good understanding of its biology and its ecology. So that meant that doing field-based ecological research was valuable for me to do. But I guess during my PhD, which was working on a species of possum in northeastern Victoria, I just started to have real misgivings. You know, I thought it was wonderful that I was learning about this animal that we knew very little about. But I couldn't see how it would ever make any difference to anybody. It wasn't going to prevent logging. What I found out wasn't going to ever end up in any policy. You know, I just couldn't see any impact coming out of it. So that's, so the, I know this is a really long answer to your question, but so that's in the background. Me thinking, oh, do I really want to be a researcher? Like, I don't know how that's going to do anything useful in the world, the sort of research that I was yeah. interested in. Combined with then, in my first year of lecturing after my PhD, I took part in a competition called Fresh Science, which still runs now. And Fresh Science trains early career researchers to communicate more effectively. And I just loved that competition. I kind of felt like, you know, I had this major light bulb moment of, I love telling people's stories and seeing their faces light up and them having this whole new understanding. And importantly, I worked out that I really liked talking about other people's science as well as my own 
So I guess I think I was just really lucky that fresh science came along at a time that enabled me to understand that, you know, that was the first time I'd heard the word science communication. And I realised that it was about storytelling, which, you know, I knew I loved writing. I knew I loved speaking. You know, I'd studied literature and philosophy and anthropology. You know, I knew I loved that stuff, but I knew that I was a born scientist. So science communication was really putting all those things together. And Fresh Science gave me the opportunity to start developing some of my own skills. So full disclosure here, I have no qualifications in science communication. I'm a scientist who's turned communicator. But as a result of Fresh Science, I got the opportunity to be interviewed on 3RRR about my work and that's now turned into 15 years of being a broadcaster and that's just super fun just absolutely love it I can tell this really lovely story now about my career and it just sounds so nicely planned and packaged and you know I went to talk to the senior people in the faculty of science and said why aren't we teaching science communication and they said what do you mean you pick it up by osmosis and I said well I think we need to teach it can I design a subject and meanwhile I've had a baby I'm living interstate where my husband's doing a postdoc I get a random phone call from someone saying we've got a little bit of funding to pay someone for a couple of months to design a science communication subject we've heard you'd be the best person to do it simply because of that competition you know now all these years later it's just as I say it's this wonderful story of now I get to lead this fantastic teaching program I have a team who work with me we teach hundreds and hundreds of students every year at Melbourne Uni how to be better communicators I get to do radio you know all these things but none of it was planned that way I didn't even know what science communication was I just knew that I loved writing I loved speaking I loved science I believe that the world would be a better place if more people understood science and, you know, could understand that science really informs so much of what's around us and is, mm-hmm. is a really good basis for making better decisions. And all of that's ended in this really privileged position I find myself in now that I get to teach science communication, I get to be a science communicator, and I get to feel like I'm making a difference. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. That's such a brilliant story. And it will resonate with anyone listening to this. You, you didn't plan for any of this to happen you just took a chance and you wanted to broaden your skill set and everything just fell out from that do you see Australian science communication slowly getting to the same level as the American and English science communication field? Like I know there's Alan Duffy who recently did a segment with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I think there's multiple ways to answer that. One is to say we have some incredible science communicators in Australia. You know, Alan's just one of many who are yeah. fantastic at what they do. So I think we have a really great presence as science communicators. The other way to answer that is to say, but it's not particularly valued in Australia. I mean, we we essentially no longer have any, well, very few uh, science journalists who are paid by the mainstream media. We have a lot of extremely talented freelance science writers. But, you know, unlike if you look overseas, you know, there's Ed Yong, there's Carl Zimmer, there's all these amazing science writers who are paid by mainstream media organisations. We don't have that. You know, we used to have Bridie Smith, who was the science writer for The Age. That position ended a number of years ago now. So, you know, I don't think we have a culture that particularly highly values that. Last year, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to visit two of the UK's best science communication uh, teaching uh, locations. Really? So Imperial College London and uh, the University of West England in Bristol. So I got to visit both of them. And they're just fantastic institutions teaching wonderful stuff. But 
they're taking the approach which is what people normally think of when they think of science communication training programs and that's to teach kind of a relatively small boutique course training people to be science communicators to Mm. be professional science communicators and i've never seen that as nearly as valuable as what we're trying to do at melbourne which is to train large numbers of scientists. So rather than having a master's program with 25 or 30 students in it who come out with, you know, industry level skills in radio or, you know, podcasting and filming and all these things, I just have always believed and still believe really passionately that it just would be much better if all the scientists out there in the world could be skilled communicators. Um, And, you know, I I fully understand that not every scientist wants to do that. I fully understand that, you know, there are scientists out there who say, but I'm not interested. I don't want to do that. I don't want to communicate with the public. Just let me do my work. So I'm not suggesting that everybody has to do that. But I just think it would be a better world if as many as possible scientists out there had had some communication training so they could be the voice of the science rather than always having to rely on a middle person to kind of do the communicating for them. And I think it's not necessarily a popular argument, but I I really feel strongly about it, that what we're doing, uh, what I've created and what I'm involved with is just a little bit different to kind of training science communicators. So just following on, something a little bit different, well, not too different, your passion for science communication in general I've noticed a lot of it is focused around climate change and the current issues around climate change, the deniers, the lack of response, all that stuff. What has been an extremely effective way you've found as a science communicator to like clearly tell someone who is kind of on the fence to get them to kind of uh, bring them over to your side and actually take climate change seriously? Communicating about climate change is actually quite a recent thing for me because probably not too long ago I didn't really feel like I had the expertise or the the knowledge to be able to do it effectively because, you know, I'm not a climate scientist. I don't have any training in climate science. So I probably convinced myself that I could leave that to other people and say, oh, no, no, that's not my expertise. I shouldn't talk about that. As you know, I recently had the opportunity to go to Antarctica and it just completely changed so much for me and made me realize that uh, we don't have time for people like me to say oh no 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 I I won't engage in difficult conversations I'll leave that to the experts I came back feeling absolutely stricken about the state of the world and a deep responsibility to try and uh, help and realizing that even though I'm not a climate expert, I know enough to be able to have useful conversations and that, in fact, my science communication training was also highly relevant. You know, the fact that I know filling people in on facts doesn't change their mind, that confirmation bias is a huge thing and people yeah. will really only believe what backs up what they already think. You know, I, I had to admit to myself that actually I do know a lot of relevant stuff, even if it's not the climate science. So I guess getting back from Antarctica, I took it upon myself to try and, yeah, be more proactive in this space and try and become an advocate for the planet much more than I had done before. And so I guess I just started doing a bit of research really into what makes effective communication about climate science. And I still don't pretend in any way to be an expert about the the actual climate science. But what I've learned from the research is that you don't need to know very much about the science to have useful conversations. And the fact that I can tell personal stories about uh, watching glaciers melt and being in Antarctica in the hottest summer on record, you know, those are things that actually have the power to convince people. And the research suggests that really 
The only facts we need to convey to people are that uh, climate science is real, that, that what they've heard is true, and that there's near unanimous agreement amongst scientists that climate change is real and that it's happening and that it's serious and that it's going to have major effects on humanity and our planet and to not focus only on the negative but to empower people to realise that we can all make changes that are positive and the research suggests that really that's what we need to do. We need to focus on the personal. So when we're having conversations with people, uh, we need to talk with them about the weather in their local, you know, in their around their home and have they noticed any changes and I mean, you know, any Australian can talk about bushfires and we can talk yeah. about what the climate links might be there and to get people to think about, well, you know, in your childhood, what, what was the weather like? And, you know, it's about making it personal and it's about empowering people to realise that it's not about guilt. You know, maybe you do need to own a car. Maybe the only way you can practically live your life with your work or your family or your study commitments is to own a car. But there are lots of other things, you know, that you can do. So, yeah, I just feel really compelled to try and be part of this positive wave of people talking about it more. And it turns out that one of the single most effective things we can all do to uh, enact change around uh, our climate is to have more conversations about it because... We all assume that everyone's talking about it, but the research shows that actually nobody's talking about it because we either assume that it's going to be a trigger for difficult conversations or we assume that our friends already agree with us or we decide that it's not interesting or, you know, it's been called the spiral of silence, that everyone thinks we should be talking about this issue and, in fact, nobody is talking about it. So I just try and have conversations with people now. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. What about actually, like, another quick thing, because I'm quite curious as to your perspective. If you got someone on the fence, personalising it might bring them across. But what about someone who is just a complete sceptic on all things science? Because they do exist, and some of them do hold positions where they make decisions. How do you approach someone like that? So there was a really interesting study. I can't remember how long ago it was done, but there was a really interesting study done which had two groups of people and a set of questions around climate. And both of those groups of people were given this set of questions. And, you know, it showed that, you know, what they were trying to work at is how sceptical people were essentially about the science of climate change and whether they believed it was real and happening and how serious it was and all that sort of stuff. But one of the groups, before they asked them the climate questions, they asked them a series of other questions. And those questions, I can't remember the exact wording, but was something along the lines of, do you agree or disagree that gravity is the force that uh, is responsible for an apple falling out of a tree? Do you agree or disagree that many illnesses are caused by microscopic germs? You know, these general science questions. And it turns out that if you ask a group of climate change sceptics those questions first as primer questions, when they get then get asked the climate change related questions, they find it so much more difficult to disagree with the science of climate change because they've just agreed with these other scientific premises, which I think is fascinating research, right? Because it basically means people are more consistent within themselves than we might give them credit for. And if you can get them to acknowledge and reflect on the fact that, yeah, yeah, I totally believe in gravity and I totally believe that germs cause disease, then it's really hard for them to say, but I don't believe the science of climate change. So what that suggests for us as everyday people on the street is that 
maybe having some of these general kind of science conversations might be a useful primer for a conversation that you want to have with a skeptic about climate change. I think that's just really interesting and I'm so glad that someone thought to do that basic research because it seems really obvious but I wouldn't have thought to run an experiment like that. The psychology behind your core beliefs versus surface beliefs that's a whole kettle of fish Um, but it's amazing that we can kind of utilize those kind of psychological tricks within us to effectively communicate ideas and like get someone to actually listen to what we're saying which is at the end of the day the hardest part isn't it getting someone to actually not just kind of stand there and just like all right I'll let you say your piece but then I'm going to say mine but actually listen to what you're saying and I think you raise another really good point you know the research suggests that it's just so crucial that we listen carefully you know if you're if you've decided you want to go and have a conversation with someone who you know is somewhere you know around being a climate skeptic whether they're full-on or just a little Mm. bit uncertain if you go in and give your lecture and expect them to be convinced you're kidding yourself you have to try and understand why people are skeptics and for many people it's probably rooted in fear or anxiety or some really understandable human emotion and unless we listen to that and hear that and acknowledge that how can we possibly expect people to listen to us you know as the converted trying to convince them of something different you know I think it you know we're humans and a lot of this comes down to kind of humanity as I mean I'm not a psychologist but I've read enough and thought about it enough to realize that listening I think is a absolutely crucial part of any climate change conversation and asking questions you know not just saying what you want to say but trying to ask questions and uncover where this person has who has such a different viewpoint is coming from because you know if you if you just come at it well I can't you just you're clearly stupid you know you clearly just don't understand anything how can you possibly not believe in climate change if that's the attitude you go in with I think you've just got no hope of having a productive conversation whereas if you go in with curiosity around to me it seems so clear that the fact to speaking for themselves I'm fascinated by by the fact that that's not the case for you I'd really love to understand what are your experiences what have you read what have you heard what are you concerned about and I'm sure for a lot of people they're just in denial I mean I reckon I was until I was in Antarctica even though I knew the science of climate change and I'd known it for a long time for me until I was standing in the sun wearing a t-shirt in Antarctica watching you know glaciers carve and watching the ice melting for me that was the first time that I basically went oh crap you know it's really obvious to me now that if all this ice around me melts the sea level is going to rise drastically and I know it's more complicated than that and I know there's many nuanced effects that that are going to you know result from our changing climate but for me that was the real moment when I I I didn't just know it I felt it yeah and I'm so privileged you know most people are never going to have the chance to see that so I think it's very arrogant for me to assume that other people will just suddenly be on board if actually they're kind of in denial because I reckon I was for ages now one more thing and we'll we'll again do a bit of a left turn from climate change which is the brewing conversation thank you I really well there's two things that I want to talk about one your trip to Antarctica that was part of a leadership program uh, that you went on which I would love to get into as well as you're currently writing a book a little birdie told me. <laughs> Actually, two, but let's not oh, talk fantastic. about that because I don't have any time to write at the moment. But um, so Antarctica, um, so many of your listeners, I'm sure, will have heard of Homeward Bound. It's a leadership program that came out of Australia, came out of Melbourne, in fact. The oh, uh, founder of Homeward Bound is Fabian Datner, who is an uh, incredible leadership 
guru and she uh, literally had a dream one night where she imagined taking uh, a whole lot of women to Antarctica and just putting them in this incredible environment that was, you know, isolated and, and really you know, really makes you think about the future of the planet and teaching these women in science to be more effective leaders because basically what she had identified is that the planet is uh, in real trouble and women have a very particular leadership style which is incredibly effective. Uh, women tend to be much more cooperative and consultative and collaborative than men do. So this is not about bashing men and saying men shouldn't be leaders. This is simply saying that we need equal numbers of women to be leaders because they bring a very different and effective style to leadership. Mm -hmm. And Fabian really believed that some of the most important leadership positions needed to be filled by women in the sciences. So in STEM M, so science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. So she teamed up with an amazing group of people to create Homeward Bound, which is it's a 12 month leadership training program, 11 months of which is spent at home learning online a whole lot of incredible stuff. Oh, wow. Um, then going to Antarctica for, for three weeks, three and a half weeks, and being in this really isolated and, and immersive uh, environment so and so yeah this was the fourth iteration of Homeward Bound that I was involved with and we had uh, 100 women from 34 countries oh, wow. who spent yeah most of the year learning online together and then we all met in South America in November last year and then got on a ship and traveled to Antarctica for three weeks and it was, yeah, it was just incredible yeah, on every level. You know, the women I got to know, uh, having the opportunity to be part of the teaching team, to travel to Antarctica, to experience this incredible learning environment. So many layers to why it was an incredible experience. And I'm just so grateful that I was given the opportunity. So the program Homeward Bound, did you actually apply to do that program or you, you were just brought on straight for staff? No, I didn't. I've never actually done it myself. Um, a lot of the teaching, the uh, faculty they're called, um, a lot of the faculty are alumni from the program. Okay. Um, but no, I'd never been. So this is my first time to Antarctica and through various connections I just got invited to become part of the faculty so I can't tell you anything about the application process because I didn't do it I'm sorry but I can certainly tell you that it's, a, it's an incredible program to be part of. The, the whole trip to Antarctica was the purpose of that just to drive home what you guys were all aiming for in terms of leadership skills or was there something more to it? Uh, look I think the whole Antarctica thing is really complicated because it's very easy to criticise and say, but hang on, if you're a program that's all about equipping women with the leadership skills to, you know, make, make decisions for a healthier planet, how hypocritical is it to fly 100 women to South America and then go to one of the places in the world that's meant to be completely pristine but we know is being degraded by tourists? Mm. So, you know, I, I must admit I was a bit sceptical beforehand. I... I I was certainly really delighted and, and excited and feeling really privileged to have the opportunity to go, but I was certainly a bit unsettled about it. Can we justify doing this? And, and I do still have a lot of complicated thoughts about it, but given that we don't have two hours to talk about it, I guess <laughs> I, what I would say is I understand why Homeward Bound uses this as kind of the, the big capstone experience, if you like, because I think... It takes women out of their, certainly out of their comfort zones, but also into a real, it's just so isolated and it's so immersive 
and to be taken away from your day-to-day -day life where you're looking after your children or your parents or your siblings, being on email all the time. I mean, you know, the women who get selected for this program are incredibly high achieving. They're busy, incredibly capable, unbelievably talented women who have very busy lives. And to have three weeks where you're focusing on you and how you can become a more effective contributor to a better planet and to be taken away from the day-to-day -day pressures and that every time you look out a window, you are struck by this landscape that's just more breathtakingly beautiful than you can imagine. You know, that's kind of where transformation happens. So it is a, it, you know, it's a, it's a thing that tourists are a problem for Antarctica and we just contributed to it. And there's definitely a conflict there. But I can understand now why Fabian and, and the rest of the leadership crew want this to be part of Homeward Bound because I don't know how you would replicate that anywhere else. Completely changed me and my perspective on the planet and I, I can't think of where else that could have happened. So what did you guys actually do in Antarctica? So was it just like a bit of a retreat almost, a way just to get away from it all or were you given activities or roles to do while you were there? So basically each day was pretty much split in half where half of the day was spent doing classes on the ship and oh, half wow. the day was being out in the environment. So we were travelling around the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the most accessible part of Antarctica. It's basically a two-day ship journey from the tip of South America. So you cross the Drake Passage for two days and then you're basically in Antarctic waters. And then we travelled around, so we got to see lots of different parts of Antarctica and each day, as I said, half the day was spent indoors uh, learning doing any number of activities and classes and interactive sessions and sort of learning in various ways. And then the other half of the day was actually getting out into the environment. So putting on all the ridiculous layers of loads that you need, um, hopping onto the little Zodiac boats and then either travelling around in the Zodiac if there was nowhere that we could land or actually going onto land and walking and exploring and experiencing the environment. Uh, and of course, learning about the science of Antarctica. You know, I said one of the teaching streams is science and that is learning about Antarctic science. Oh my goodness, that's such an amazing experience. And is Homeward Bound, is that open to any, do you have to get invited to participate or? No, no, you just apply. So unfortunately this, the, so I was on Homeward Bound 4, Homeward Bound 5 is happening this year and the applications have just closed yesterday, I think, for Homeward oh. Bound 6. Um, but, you know, the idea is that it's a 10-year program, so there will be a Homeward Bound 7, 8, 9 and 10. And uh, any woman with a background in science, so you don't have to be working as a scientist now. And as I said, I'm using science loosely for anyone with a background in science, technology, uh, engineering, maths and medicine. Anyone with a background in that area, regardless of what you do now, is you know and you identify as a woman you are eligible to apply oh that's brilliant hopefully someone uh listening to this uh, is keen for next year i might chuck in a quick application as well <laughs> maybe well no this don't is... make it quick make sure you put the effort in because it oh, yes. it's, you know, it's hard to get into it's very very competitive but uh, if you get the opportunity it's yeah it's just incredible and i guess part of the vision of homeward bound is is creating this force of a thousand women who have developed their capacity to to be effective and visible and strategic leaders and to lead in a in a real collaborative manner and with the aim of making the planet a better place you know making decisions that are focused on the legacy that you're going to leave on the planet and so the idea is that we can have a thousand women around the world who embody this and who have each other as a network to interact with we have a whatsapp group from hb4 and 
there's anywhere from 20 to 50 messages a day. You know, this group of women is in constant contact with each other, commiserating the, the challenges, celebrating the successes, offering support. You know, once you become part of the Homeward Bound family, there's just this incredible network of women doing just extraordinary things. I mean, you just, yeah, you just can't imagine some of the, the ways that people are changing the world around them. It's very humbling. Fingers crossed, like a few years from now, we'll have that thousand woman force getting into corporate level, into parliament. Oh, it'll yep. be an amazing time, time to see. Forgotten. So the other one, I would love to have a chat with you about uh, your book that you're writing. You definitely chose the oh, right yeah. time to uh, be at home to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, so I actually have two books going on at the moment. So I'll try and tell the story quickly. So for many years, I had been uh, teaching my students about blogging. I'd argued that blogging was a really great way to communicate science to the public. And all the while, I was just feeling like the most terrible hypocrite because I didn't have a blog, even though I was telling my students they should. And that was simply because I just I couldn't see a niche for myself. I didn't really want to start a blog just for the sake of it. I couldn't really see a niche for myself. And then I started noticing once I started doing that breakfast radio segment every week, um, I often had people ringing up the station afterwards and saying, oh, that was really interesting. How can I find out more? How can I hear more about that? And so a complete light bulb moment, like, well, that's my blog then. You know, I can talk about it on the radio and doing the research for the segment anyway, I can spend a couple more hours and write up a blog post about it. So um, in 2014, I started my blog, Espresso Science, which goes hand in hand with what I talk about on the radio. A year or so ago, I was contacted by some publishers in London who I'd never heard of who said, we really love your blog. We want to make a book out of it <laughs> I'm like oh that sounds kind of cool oh, so yeah so one of the books is kind of updated and edited versions of the culmination of a whole lot of blog posts that I've written and that one's going to be called why am I like this the science behind some of your weirdest habits <laughs> and I think COVID is going to slow everything down um, but hopefully that will come out next year sometime I still need to do a whole lot of editing and then the other book that I'm working on at the moment is a textbook for Palgrave Macmillan basically an introductory textbook for science communication um, which is very much aimed at the students that I teach so not people who have identified I want to be a science communicator but rather science students who would like to learn just a little bit about how to give a better talk how to design a better conference poster how to write a blog how to use social media as an effective professional platform to help with employment kind of all the stuff that I teach so, oh. Look, I'm really excited about both projects and yeah, I love writing. I've always loved writing, but you have to have some brain space to be able to do it yeah. and not just be constantly reacting to the next urgent task. Could you just um, remind everyone here who's listening, what was the one with your blogs called again? Hang on, I'm going to have to double check to make sure I tell you the right title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you the wrong title. At the moment, it could change, but at the moment it's called Why Am I Like This? with the subtitle, The Science Behind Your Weirdest Habits. Fantastic. I'll and make sure. Yeah, it's a combination of a whole lot of stuff that I've um, written over the last few years that I'm just updating and editing and improving, basically. Oh, it's something for everyone to look forward to at the start of next year. It's been a brilliant, brilliant conversation. Thank you so much for having a chat. I would just like to close this off with an audience requested question. They wanted to know, is it possible and how would you go about getting into science communication if you don't actually have a science background? Look, it's a really good question and I get asked it a lot and I feel 
somewhat conflicted when I answer this question because on the one hand I want to encourage everybody to do everything they can to communicate about science whether it's a paid job or a non-paid job I mean I get asked all the time how can I get a job on radio and I'm like I don't know I'm a volunteer I've been volunteering for 15 years I don't get paid a cent you know not all science communication will be paid so I don't want to discourage anybody but I do have to be completely honest and say mm. that I think much, much, much harder to be a, you know, to be recognised as a science communicator if you don't have the science training because I think one of the key things that people care about is your credibility. So why should you listen to somebody who's talking about science? How can you be confident that they're talking, you know, that they're spreading accurate information? And if you don't have any science training, I think it's much harder to convince people of your Credibility. Now, that doesn't mean that someone without a science degree can't be incredibly knowledgeable and be absolutely uh, on top of the facts and be spreading accurate information. But the point is that we all make very quick judgments about other people. And if someone, or sorry, if they know that you don't have any science training, I think that respect and credibility is much harder to come by. And, you know, people say to me often when I tell the story of my PhD, which we didn't really talk about that much, but, you know, I worked on a nocturnal animal. I had to work alone. I'm an extrovert you know some of my PhD was really really hard you know people say to me do you do you wish you'd worked out that you wanted to be a science communicator sooner because then you wouldn't have had to stuck out your, you know stick out your PhD for so many years and my response has always been no I'm incredibly grateful I did my PhD one because it taught me how hard research is and that's really important in my job now when I teach researchers but two I feel like those two little letters in front of my name um, actually give me a whole lot of credibility and you know on triple R I'm known as Dr Jen would people listen to me less if I wasn't Dr Jen I don't know that but I kind of feel like it just helps people to go oh yeah she knows what she's talking about so I think don't not pursue it if you don't have a science background but recognize that it could be harder in the early stages until you've built up a reputation for yourself and some credibility I don't know what's your opinion I mean you have a lot of knowledge in this area what do you think? <laughs> Look I, I'm honestly in the same boat I do want to get more into science communication I mean it's why I'm involved in Let's Talk but I do recognize that right now I am still an undergrad and I don't really have the same kind of clout as one of those early career or further science communicators out there. So I do feel a little bit out of my depth when I do want to talk about a technical sciencey topic. So if I do give talks on that kind of stuff, it's typically my own research. I still don't feel confident yet presenting someone else's research because I just don't feel like I can do it justice right now with my level of skill and knowledge. But that's not to say someone else who is just so super passionate about science in general can't convey that same passion even if they don't have the same technical understanding. So it's very similar to what you said, yeah. I totally agree with you. And I mean, one of my favourite science communicators, um, Alicia Sometimes, she, she's a poet and an artist and she doesn't have any science training, formal science training, but she's so knowledgeable about uh, astrophysics because she loves it. Yeah. And she's done an incredible kind of art science project so but I guess she you know she, she's held in such high esteem as a, as a as an artist and as a writer and her her passion for physics is just so palpable that people listen to her so yeah I, I would never say never but I just think I mean I guess for me you know I talk about a different scientific on top just a different scientific topic on radio every week so I'm reading new research every week and I guess you know what I'm known for is talking about science that's accurate 
it, but that's accessible. So I make sure that any person out there listening to Triple R Breakfasters, they probably have no interest in science, but I make sure they can understand what I'm talking about. And I guess my science training is important because I can read the primary literature and know what they're talking about and know at least at a basic level whether the research has been done properly or not. And I think without my science training, I'd be relying on what journalists had written about the research. And most journalists do a terrific job. This is not about bashing journalists, but, you know, mistakes do get made. So for me, the superpower of a science degree is that I can go to the primary literature and read that. And I think that's harder if you haven't had the science training. So I hope it doesn't discourage any one from moving forward no. to that but just recognize that you're probably going to have to upskill yourself a little bit if you want to be taken seriously as a communicator think about where your skills lie you know are you a writer are you an illustrator are you a musician you know there are so many ways to communicate Get you know creative. we haven't talked about that at all you know I, I just happen to be someone who likes speaking and writing they're pretty boring basic skills really I mean there's incredible science communicators who do it via photography or via graphics or via amazing YouTube clips or via theatre. I mean, there's a million ways to communicate science and we need those million ways in order to connect with all of the diverse audiences out there. So maybe you don't have a science degree, but maybe you have these other amazing skills that you can marry with your love of science. And that's how you become a credible and, and respected communicator because of your other skills. Well, that's a wonderful way to end this podcast. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much. That's it for our time today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next podcast. Thank you, guys.